So my objective in this study was to look at the different passages of scripture that are often used against the LGBTQ community. And uh, we will be finishing this study next Wednesday night. Tonight, what we're going to do is look at the passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll also talk a little bit about some of the verses that surround this. But um, by way of reminder, we uh, were talking a little bit about uh, some of the things that uh, have come before. We looked at Genesis 19. We said that that's more about violent rape than it is a commentary about homosexuality. We talked about Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, where that's part of the holiness code that is setting the nation of Israel apart from some of the other pagan nations around them. And then last time we looked, not last week, we went to the Ash Wednesday service last Wednesday night, but two weeks ago, we looked at the book of Romans, uh, which we talked about it being a part of the overall objective of what Paul was trying to do in getting to Rome and then eventually beyond Rome to Spain. So tonight we're going to take a look at Paul's correspondence in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, uh, this particular passage of scripture that we're looking at here is uh, two of the verses that are used most often to clobber LGBTQ folks. And uh, while uh, other passages of scripture are referred to, there is sort of like a straightforward, literalistic reading of these two uh, verses that we're going to look at this week and next week. And uh, so... Uh, we'll look at 1 Timothy next week, which is the context of the city of Ephesus. Tonight, we're taking a look at the context in the city of Corinth. So these two passages are important to get our arms around. And one of the reasons these two verses are used most often is because in some translations, this is where the word homosexuality or homosexual shows up. So we're going to talk a little bit about how they came to uh, the conclusion of using this word to describe what's going on in the passage uh, when we get to that in a few moments. But the first thing I'd like to do is uh, I, I would like to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and just read these two verses, then we'll double back and talk a little bit about its context. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you come down to verse 9 and 10, it says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So here we find the NIV does not use the word homosexual, but it does appear in the King James Version. So if you had a King James translation, this is where the word homosexual and homosexuality appear in the text. Now, 
what we're going to find as we talk about this tonight is even when we use the word homosexual or homosexuality, there's a question mark as to what we are talking about. So the first question I want to launch into before we come back to the couple of verses here is to ask the question, is homosexuality all about sex? So it seems as though when the word is used, it's not talking about an identity as much as it is talking about an activity. At least that's the way it's often presented within certain circles of the Christian church. In asking this question, we are reducing uh, this particular word to one activity, and that is what ha happens in the bedroom or in a more licentious setting within uh, group sex. I think it can be kind of framed a little bit different if we were to ask this question, is heterosexuality a sin? And most people will go, well, that's kind of a silly question to ask because the answer is, well, it depends. So when there is sexual relations between a man and a woman, it can be either something very beautiful or it can be something that is considered sinful, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 6, and 7 tonight. So the activity of heterosexual sex is dependent upon a certain context and a certain commitment level that is assumed by the Apostle Paul in his writings. So what I'm trying to say as we get into this text is to just use the King James translation because the word homosexual appears there and reduce it to simply being something that is done behind the bedroom door is short-sighted and it's not very well thought out. Rarely are one-word answers practical and helpful. There's often nuance that needs to go along with that. So the intimate activity between two people depends really on what that activity is rather than it being between two people the same gender or a heterosexual relationship. And here's what I mean by that. When there is an encounter of sex between a man and a woman, it can be something that is a gift or it is something that can be a, a violation. Uh, it is something that is actual criminal in, in its intent. So I'm thinking of things like rape, uh, trafficking, prostitution, different things like that. So if we can get a bigger perspective on this and not reduce everything to kind of a binary definition, then I think that will help open up for us the idea that homosexuality is about more than the physical relationship. It's about identity. It's about uh, a lot of different things that um, are very important to the LGBTQ community but rarely do Christians uh, give that acknowledgement to that. So let me stop there and see if you have a question or comment on that. 
and then we'll move to the next slide and we'll inch up to this passage here in first Corinthians six. Any thoughts? Okay. So when I read and I was reading out of a lexicon that I have here, this is the Greek and English uh, New Testament. So on one side of this New Testament is, is Koine Greek, and on the other side is English. And that's very helpful because you're able to see what words are being used and how they are translated. When I read 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, there are actually two words in the text there that are important to our topic tonight. And the two words are malakoi, and the other one is arsenikoitai. So we'll, um, let's talk about that for a second. So translations try to do different things. And the NIV and other translations try to help the reader uh, read the text with fluidity. If you're familiar with the New American Standard Bible, it's a more wooden translation, and it tries to translate word for word rather than uh, concept to concept or sentence to sentence. And in the NI, uh, in the New American Standard uh, translation, it translates this word malakoi as effeminate. Okay, so. When you read this, it says here, neither the sexually immoral, well, that's the word malakoi, the sexually effeminate, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, and that's the second word in Greek, arsenokoitai, and it, that's the word that is often translated homosexual here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 110, which we'll get to next week. Now, the implications here on how to apply Paul's words here depends upon which translation you're looking at. So I'm going to read a couple of other translations and see if you notice the difference. So this comes out of the New, uh, uh, the new Revised Standard Version. Okay, so listen to how this reads. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revelers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You see a difference there in the translation? These two words are translated as male prostitutes and sodomites in the New Revised Standard Version versus uh, King James, effeminate and homosexual, and versus the New International Version, which translates it sexually immoral and men who have sex with men. Um, so one more translation and then we'll talk about what's going on here. So this is from the Christian Standard Bible version. And 
it reads in chapter 6, verses uh, 9 and 10, it says, um, Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, ver verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now, I could go on if I wanted to pull some of the other translations I have uh, off the shelf. We could do, do a, a whole a whole night just comparing the translations. Here's the deal though. The translators don't really know exactly what Paul means with these words. And the reason is, you see this word here, arsenokoitai uh, is used only here in the New Testament. So in other words, it's also used in 1 Timothy 1.10, but what I'm saying, it's only used by the Apostle Paul. So we have really no other way to uh, associate uh, in extra biblical literature or other scriptural references what the nuances of this verse is. Many scholars believe Paul made the word up. And what is happening here is he's trying to describe something that's going on, and it's probably bound up in the Corinthian context, because if you look at chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians, the, all three chapters is about uh, sexual immorality, except for one paragraph that talks about lawsuits, and that's uh, found also in chapter 6. Um, first Corinthians, when uh, Paul begins in verse one about people having a dispute with one another and taking each other to court. So it's quite very interesting what's going on here. Now, this relates back to what I just said about homosexuality. Is it about activity or is it about identity? Words such as effeminate and homosexual are about a person's identity. This is who they are. But when you wor use words like sex with prostitutes or men who practice uh, sex with other men, you're talking about activity. So we're already kind of deep in the woods here, trying to figure out what Paul is trying to get at. So let me stop and see if I've confused you and if I can clarify it, because it, I'm going to build on this in the next couple of slides. Any thoughts, questions so far? Okay, so what's going on here is there's some things that are being lost in translation. Whether you realize it or not, it is very, very difficult, no matter what languages you're talking about. It could be Spanish, it could be German, it could be Croatian, it could be Japanese, it could be Chinese, Portuguese, no, no two languages match up. So when you're trying to translate from uh, Greek into English or any other language, you somehow have to use qualifiers and adjectives and, and different things to get at what the original language is trying to say. So 
since no two languages match up identically, it's quite tricky and it's often very nuanced scholars trying to get to the heart of what is being said in the text. So it's very rare to find an exact word for word translation that encompasses the full range of meaning and nuance of each respective language. So Esty watches uh, some, some of Croatian worship services uh, on Sunday uh, from her hometown. And she will say to me many times, do you recognize the song that they're singing? I recognize obviously the tune, but the, uh, but the words, uh, as they're as close as possible to some of the, whatever, Charles Wesley's hymns or whatever. But even there, there has to be some elasticity to be able to make that work in another language. So um, the same thing is true um, when you're talking about Bible translations. There's often difficulties that arise, and that is, what is the language like? So in English, we use the word love for a variety of different things. I love my wife. I love my dog. I love chocolate. I love a day off, you know, whatever. Excuse me. In Greek, they have a range of words that are all translated love, but they have different nuances to it, like agape, phileo, eros, different things like that. So when it comes to Bible translation, there are complications. And then when you have a word that is found nowhere else in the New Testament, except the two references by Paul, then you really have a complication because you have nothing to compare it to. So whatever we think about what Paul is doing here, be, be aware that even scholars don't know exactly what he's getting at. So when you're when you're trying to build a case against the LGBTQ community and you use these two verses simply because a particular translation uses a word homosexual because it is something that is one of those triggering type words, then you're not being real honest with the text, and you're not being real honest with the complexities of translation. Does that make sense to everybody? Anything I can do to help clarify that? Okay, so now the word homosexual is a fairly recent word in English. Hasn't been around a, uh, a long time. And it is something that has a very technical definition to it. So here's one definition. To be a homosexual, according to today's understanding or definition of the word, is to identify with a subset of the population. Um, the gay community is about 10% of the population of the United States who experience an enduring pattern of emotional, now this is important, emotional, romantic, and sexual attraction to members of the same sex. 
Now it's no longer just a physical activity. It also involves love and emotion. It involves interests, mutual interests. It involves emotional bonding. So when we use this technical definition of homosexual, or we might call it a clinical definition, you can't superimpose that back onto the text because this wasn't even on Paul's radar, okay? So to be able to have one definition match up to another definition from a text that's a couple of thousand years old is, is something that is probably stepping out of bounds with trying to make the text say what we want it to say. So notice here, you can take this same definition and you can apply it to other identities as well. So uh, we experience attraction towards members of the opposite sex. That's called heterosexuality. Homosexuality is attraction to the same gender. And then there are certain people that are equally attracted to male or female that we call bisexuality. So it's not something that is just a physical activity. It is something that involves a lot more. That's important for us to understand. Science has said uh, in most recent research over the last 25 years, is this identity is something that people are born with. This is something that um, that they just don't choose. It is something that in some way is part of who they are, the very essence of who they are. So I just wanted to kind of lay that out because that's important to understand that Paul didn't have these clinical type of um, understanding or definitions that he was working with. So now that helps us to go back and ask the question, well, what is he trying to actually say in this paragraph? So any thoughts or comments that you have? Okay, so let's talk about context for a second. So when you look at these two verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, the discussion actually begins in chapter 5. So come back to chapter 5, verse 1. Now remember, we're not doing an overview of the book of 1 Corinthians tonight, but there's all kinds of divisiveness within the Corinthian congregation. It is believed Paul had to write this local church four times. Um, that's another discussion. We have First and Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, though, because of its disjointedness, might be actually three letters in one. We might have all four letters, but um, what what's going on here is that Paul's writing the Corinthians because they are disunified. They're fighting. It's showing up in a variety of different ways. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, when they're having the, the Lord's Supper, um, some people are eating and drinking and other people have nothing. And 
it's it you know it's a real dichotomy of the haves and the have-nots also they're divided among who their favorite teacher is so early in first corinthians some people are saying i'm of paul some are saying i'm of apollos i'm of cephas so they're kind of uh, all um they're all segregated to their favorite communicator now this division though is is deepened by some really severe social um you know not just sin but social uh you know dangers that are in the congregation so look at verse one of chapter five it says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate now that's quite a statement not even pagan people put up with this well what is it a man is sleeping with his father's wife now qualification there this is probably a stepmother this probably isn't a mother okay but still and then verse two says and you are proud shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this so this is where it begins there is some sin in the camp and that is there is a guy that's sleeping with his stepmother. Okay, that goes on down and he talks uh, uh, about some of these things. But even in chapter five, he talks about some of the other problems. Look at verse nine. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. What letter is that? We're reading first Corinthians, right? Uh, maybe there was a previous letter. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. So he's starting to name some of the same things that he's already mentioned that we looked at in chapter six. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler, do not even eat with such people. In other words, Paul seems to be implying here that there should be some type of discipline for these that are wrecking havoc within the community in Corinth. Okay, so it's set up by chapter five, a guy sleeping with his stepmother. Then he comes into chapter six. He takes a little side road in verse one where he's talking about another problem, and that is these Christians who are brothers and sisters in the faith are taking each other to court and suing each other. And you see that in chapter six, uh, down verses one through six. And then he gets into verse seven, and he returns back to this ideal uh, of idea of sexual conduct by reminding them that their bodies are the temple of God and if they are sleeping around, especially with prostitutes, they are joining their body with the um, person that they are sleeping with. Then in chapter seven, 
he comes to verse one and he wants to clarify some things. He's been harping on this sexual activity. And in verse one, he says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Now he's beginning to say there's a context here uh, in which this sexual relationship should occur. But then he goes on in chapter 7 and he makes a comment um, in verse 8. He says, now to the unmarried, the, the single people, and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So at this point, Paul is single, and he says they'd be better off not to get married. And probably part of his reasoning is they have more time on their hand to devote in service to the Lord. But verse 9 says, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he's talking a little bit about marriage, he's talking a little bit about celibacy, and he's talking a little bit about the difficulty of abstinence. And so all of these things kind of are the overall context in which these two verses sit. So that's important to keep in mind. It's not like Paul is singling out one particular thing it's a part of a quilt work of all kinds of different problems that are going on in the Corinthian congregation that's dividing the people and causing further damage to the body of Christ. Okay, thoughts or questions there? Now we come to the nitty gritty. So let's go back to these two words. So King James translation translates malakoi as soft or effeminate. Now, the NIV doesn't translate it that way. It's interesting. Um, it, it just translates it as sexually immoral. Okay. Well, this word here does have some cross-references to it. So malakoi can be used in other contexts. And one of the contexts is it can refer to soft fabric, something soft uh, that can, you know, is, is being described here. So how does that relate? Secondly, the word can also be used in a moral context where when a person is called soft, uh, it, it, it means he lacks courage. So um, here is a person that has a soft disposition. Uh, it might be a lack of self-control. It might be lazy. Or as some of the commentators suggest, it might suggest spinelessness. So here's an individual that is soft, is, is not able to persevere, is not able to uh, strengthen up. Now, the third way it can be translated is very pejorative, and it's the idea of a womanly man. And this is where King James translated as effeminate. So it has this idea of the cultural understanding in Paul's day is a man 
does certain things. Uh, a man is uh, to be strong. This is a patriarchal society. Um, probably a good illustration of this is, do you remember in the story of Jacob and Esau? Esau was the hairy dude, the hunter, the man's man, where Jacob is considered the mama's son, and he is considered soft, or uh, he doesn't have these characteristics to go out and hunt game and prepare a meal for his dad. That's probably a good illustration here. So it's the idea of a man is not fitting the cultural expectation of what a man should be, if that makes sense. So it's this idea that here is an individual that doesn't look like a man, doesn't act like a man. He is not living up to his um, role within the culture, within uh, the society that he lives in. Now, the reason I say that is keep your thumb here and go over to chapter 11, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians. So in chapter 11, and you come down, look at verse 13. This is all about head coverings and how a woman is to keep her head covered when she prays. So there's a lot of cultural stuff that's going on here. But I want you to notice one thing. So verse 13 says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So that, that is a rhetorical question in some ways, but it expects an, uh, an answer. No, she should keep her head covered. Then verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? So evidently, in this context, men were getting haircuts and long hair seemed to be more effeminate. And um, so Paul is saying, don't you know, uh, men should have shorter hair. And uh, of course, this has gone off the rails at certain times in the church too. You know, when I, when I first went to Moody, the first year I went up there, we had to have our hair cut above our ear because that was part of kind of the subculture there. Of course, what was the context? Well, that was 1980. You're coming off the 70s when long hair was a part of the culture. So anyways, so what seems to be going on here with this word, malakoi, is it seems as though there is some type of cultural expectation of what a man looks like, what a man does, and the strength that he projects within his culture. Certain men didn't live up to that. Certain men, uh, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't project that image. So that's one way of looking at this. Um, could this be the bias of the Apostle Paul? Probably not because of what it's connected to. It's connected to other things, idolatry. So if you're back to chapter six of 1 Corinthians, it's connected to idolatry, adultery, and then this other word that we're coming to, sex with men, men who have sex with men. But then he also throws in thievery, greed, 
drunkenness, slandering, and swindling. So there are certain cultures where there is a lot of bad behavior that characterizes a subculture. And it seems as though this cosmopolitan city of Corinth was one of those settings that brought in all kinds of influences from all around the world. And there were people that are trying to take advantage of other people. And some of it was connected to pagan worship. Some of it was just connected to money and the desire to get rich and that type of thing. So let me stop there and see if you have any comments or questions. So Malakoy has been translated a variety of different ways, but in the King James translation, it was translated as soft or effeminate. And it's this idea, it's connected to the word that follows in the King James Version, and that is homosexual, that the, the, somehow these things go together. All right. Okay, so we come to the second word. Now, <clears throat> different translations, again, have a hard time with this because this is the only place in 1 Timothy 1 where this word appears. So there's not a lot of other contexts that we can look to to get more clarification. But what we do know is that it is a compound word. And if you were to break it down, um, it, it is one part of the word is male. The other part of the word is bed, a male bed. So you can see up the top here that one of the ways that it, it had been translated is abusers of themselves with mankind. So, you know, different people have different ways of looking at this. Uh, how is a man abusing himself on his bed? Uh, or is this simply something that is talking about what men do with other men? So we're not sure. We're, we have no idea. Because of the uniqueness of the word and because of the things that surround it in the verse, it seems as though there is something aggressive that is going on here. Because in each of these words that follow, there is one individual taking advantage of another individual. Thievery, swindling, slandering, those type of words. So if Paul has in mind what people are doing to each other, and then he talks about this one thing that the NIV translates, men who have sex with men, or as King James translates, homosexual, then maybe what we are, have done is misunderstand that this isn't so much about sexual intimacy, but it is about using sex, as we talked about all the way back in Genesis, using sex as a weapon. So do you remember when I read the Revised Standard Version? Here's how they got to this translation. Let me read it again. 
Do not be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, and sodomites. Remember what we talked about several weeks ago when we talked about Genesis 19? The word sodomite comes from this story of Sodom and Gomorrah and what was happening when the town wanted to gang rape these two visiting uh, angels that came to Lot and was staying in his, um, his residence. So you can see here that the English translations really show their hand. And that is, it's hard to say what Paul really has in mind here. What we do know is this. The cultural context seems to suggest that this is something one person is doing to another person. And to categorize it as homosexuality, plural, uh, as an identity, is something that isn't on Paul's radar, e e even in the culture, let alone the text here. So Paul would not have a reference point for an entire group of people that would have an orientation of attraction towards someone of the same gender. Now, no, you can see on the screen here, no Greek or Latin word corresponds to the modern term homosexuality. And there's a reason for that. Ancient Mediterranean society did not practice or treat homosexuality as a socially operating category. It wasn't even on the radar. So when we think that Paul's writing about homosexuality as within the clinical definition or the cultural uh, experience, we're really overstepping. Paul would have no way of communicating this any more than he would be able to write about smartphones, iPads, and televisions, okay? It, the, it didn't exist. So since there was really no concept of gay marriage uh, when the Bible was written, the reality is the Bible doesn't comment on that. But that doesn't get us away from this verse where there is something going on between two males. In, now notice, it doesn't talk about females here. It seems as though, because it's talk about male bed, that compound word, it's something that's happening between two men. Now, can we tease that out a little bit? I think so. An important date for you to keep in mind is 1946. The term homosexual does not appear in the in the Bible until 1946. So, yes, the King James Version uh, talks about effeminate and that type of thing. Later translation will start to insert the word homosexual after after uh, translators um, do their work in 1946. Now, that means even translations that carry the same title. Um, you have King James Version, but you have the new King James Version. You put them side by side, they're not exactly the same. 
You have the new international version and you have the new, uh, today's new international version. They're not the same side by side, even though it uses the same manuscripts to provide the translation. Does that make sense? Okay. Still using the same uh, manuscripts that were used for the, the initial translation. So sometimes there's an agenda that's going on here. So when the King James Version was translated in 1611, why was it named King James? Because King James underwrote the translation process for a particular reason. There was a political agenda that's attached to it. There is always some agendas. Now, this first line up here is something I hope you'll remember. Every translation of the Bible is an, an interpretation. Every translation of the Bible is an interpretation. And every interpretation of the Bible has an agenda. So, in other words, we are not agenda-free. None of us are. The minute we open the Bible and we begin reading it, we're imposing interpretations upon it. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. Sometimes they're conscious agendas that we have. Sometimes they're subconscious or unconscious agendas that we have. A translation of the Bible that uses the term homosexual in a negative light has a heterosexual agenda. So it is trying to, to shade the translation a particular way. So the first time it appears is in the Revised Standard Version in 1946. Now, the, the revision, the new Revised Standard Version in 1971 saw some of the uh, collective damaging that was being done to it and they removed the term homosexual, but they didn't help because they they use words like sodomite. That didn't help at all, did it? So it it is one of those things that you just have to be aware of. Um, there's something that's going on in the text. We don't know exactly how to translate it, and we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to. So let me stop there. Do you have some thoughts, comments, questions? I poured a lot on your lap so far. Okay. So quick question. Those, yeah, go for it. Those two words, are they do they follow each other in the Greek? Like is it the M word and then the A word? Yes. Yes, they do. Now, please remember this though, Tony. Greek language has a total diff disregard for word order. What I mean by that is, in English, you have subject, verb, object, usually. That's the sequence with which we write. Greek uses uh, word endings to define who the subject, who the object is, and so you could have a, a, a verse 
where the subject and object of the verse don't appear until the end of the verse and all of the qualifiers are up front. And a Greek person would know exactly what's being communicated because the word endings define that. But yes, to answer your question, these are side by side here in verse nine. Excuse me. So we have uh, Malakoi and Arsenokoitai. They are sitting side by side in the Greek text. All I'm telling you is that might not mean that might not mean anything as because okay. it's a part of a word list that Paul is using here. Does that make sense? Yes. Thanks. Okay. So the best thing I think to get at it is to, to look at this yellow point that I'm making here on the slide. The entire context of 1 Corinthians 5 through 7 is talking about different types of sexual encounters. And it's interesting that some translations uh, will use the term male uh, prostitutes or concubines. Now, here's an interesting one. In Martin Luther's German Bible, he'll, he'll refer to that second word, arsenonokoitai, as referring to pedophiles. Now, again, that's an interpretation. You don't get that out of the word definition alone. But Luther, I think, is getting at the heart of what's a part of first century context. And I'll explain what I mean here in a second. It seems as though it was okay to have young boys and use them, and you could be married as well to a woman, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but before I do, let me see if I helped clarify that. Did that make sense, Tony, what I said about the word order and that type of thing? Yeah, and, and so that kind of almost plays into um, Luther's interpretation of pedophile, because soft male bed. Yeah. Yep. So he'll take these two words, you're exactly right, and kind of bring them together uh, to talk about a man having sex with a man, but if it's connected to soft or effeminate, it could be referring to a boy. Right. Okay. So. All right. Okay. Let's see how this works in ancient Greece. So Corinth is at the heart of the Greek Empire. Even though Rome is in power, uh, Corinth is a part of that area, uh, Macedonia, Achaia, and Greece, that territory there that Paul traveled to in the book of Acts, was at the heart of Greek culture. So there's still a lot of Greek Hellenism that's still at play in this territory. So pedophiles, or the technical term here is pedestry, is a socially acknowledged romantic relationship between an older, that should be male, uh, and a younger male. There's a typo there on the slide. Um, and the two terms are used, 
the Erastes and the Aromenas. So the Erastes is the older male and the Aromenas is the younger male, usually a boy that's in his teens. Scholars seem to think that this might have been a part of some initiation rite in ancient Greece. In other words, before a young boy would go in to military service, an older man would toughen him up. And um, this was part of the initiation that uh, was going on. Now, usually the way we use pedophile or pedestry is in relationship to the abuse of minor children. In the ancient Greek context, these young boys um, needed to be toughened up and prepared for war. Now, remember, especially since the days, uh, especially during the days of Alexander the Great, they were a war-mongering empire. I mean, Alexander the Great, after he conquered the last known uh, empire, weeped because there was no more empires to conquer. That's, I mean, that's how vast and violent uh, the, the Greek empire was. So what do you need when you're constantly conquering and subduing different people? You need a big army and you need tough men to fight on, on your behalf. So in the Greek context, this could be referring to that initiation rite for a few years where an older male is toughening up, toughening up a younger male as well as teaching him the ropes of what it means to be a man. Does that make sense at all? If that's what Paul's referring to, and again, we don't know, you could see that Paul is saying this is such a terrible element of the culture. It's as bad as all the other things that he's listing there, idolatry and drunkenness and slanderers and swindlers and all these type of things. Thoughts, comments? So what about pedestry in Corinth? So Paul writes this letter, and I mentioned there's possibly four different letters that is written to the Corinthian congregation. So this one that we're reading here might not be the first one, even though in our Bible it's called 1 Corinthians. So this is probably written around 55 AD. And this is something that was often used um, within Corinth too. And what we'll see next week when we talk about the context of Ephesus is it seems as though some of this might be connected uh, to pagan worship, but if it's simply the Greek culture, then maybe what it's referring to is an adult male educating boys in the ways of manhood. If that is the case, um, one of the things that is being characterized here is you have a man that's important and you have a boy that's not as important. You have one who has authority and one who is subject to authority. 
in other words, there's a disproportionate relationship that's going on here, not only because of age, but also because of social status and power. Now, this second point here is very important. In the sexual pederastic relationship, the older man was also married to a woman, although he engaged in sexual activities with younger boys. So it's not as though he's homosexual, he's attracted to men. This is part of the culture, and he has a woman that he's married to. But in some cases, the woman and sexual relationships with her was primarily for procreation, to produce offspring. Whereas this other activity has to do something with toughening up a younger man, as well as a boy toy that this very important person within the culture had the opportunity to do. So um, all of these things could be going on at the same time. And what Paul is getting at, as I've mentioned a couple of times already, we're not sure exactly what he's referring to here. Let me uh, let me say this. If it is pedestry that's going on here, then one of the things that Paul is doing is pushing it back against the culture. But perhaps Paul might be aware of this. Maybe he wasn't aware of it. I don't know. But at least in the clinical uh, context of our own day and age, we know that pedophiles damage young men and they never get over it the rest of their life. And so if Paul was aware of this, maybe he knew that um, this was damaging to the youth, um, that this young man might carry physical and psychological distress with him over the course of his adulthood as well. So, um, you know, he, the catechumens or the catamite, uh, someone that is learning a particular way, usually was someone that was younger and of the same gender. Um, the other thing Paul might have in mind here, and this kind of leads into chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, when this man is uh, having this type of relationship with a young boy, it is not honoring to his wife and it is not holding his wife in esteem. So in chapter seven, he gets into that a little bit and talks about the relationship between a husband and wife and, um, and, and all of this then leads to um, verse 12 of chapter seven. He's, he he then kind of throws in the kitchen sink. He says, to the rest, I say this. And he says, I, not the Lord. So this is Paul's opinion. He says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He is talking a little bit about some of these people who had come to faith in Christ 
And now they have a partner who is not a follower of Christ. So you can see he has gone really all the way around the block from a, a man who is having sex with his stepmother to all of these other type of sexual activities back to the man and his wife and then um, the issue of divorce, which I don't think is an end-all a comment that is being made about divorce here. I think he's thinking contextually about the dynamic of uh, people who are married to people who do not believe. But I, I don't think you should draw that this is the only exception for divorce. That's that's kind of a, a whole different topic. But um, so let me summarize it with this, and then we'll see if you have some other questions. So here's how I look at this. Chapter six contains a vice list. And the verses nine and 10 is a part of that vice list. And it's a part of a harsh rebuke to the entire Corinthian congregation. And uh, these poor choices that they are making is hurting each other. And it is about ready to... Um, cause this congregation to implode and collapse. And it's so important for Paul that some of these issues be resolved so that the Corinthian congregation can continue to be a strong presence of Christianity in the heart of the Greek, uh, what was the heart of the Greek empire. So let me... Let me see. I'm going to stop the share and we'll just get everybody on screen here. Let me see if you have some questions and some thoughts, anything I can clarify. Um, the best thing I can say is this is a very complex couple of verses. And to, to use it so dismissively and to use it so simply is just not doing justification to the entire section that you find in 1 Corinthians. Thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, pushbacks, disagreements. So what version were you reading? I'm sorry, what was that? What version were you reading? The majority of what I was reading was out of the New International Version. Okay. Okay. Because I I have a new international version, but it might be an older version because it, it it actually does say um nope, wrong chapter. Um it, it says how homosexual. Okay. That probably is the older version um okay. that has has been updated. Now, let me be fair. This, if you can see this here, is just a new testament. And it is it has Greek on one side and has English on the other. So okay. it is something that is corresponding back to to the Koine Greek. So there might be differences with the people that did this translation, even though it's said to be an NIV translation. There might be updates. I'd have to look at the copyright dates uh, between the different Bibles because translations are always being 
updated sometimes too. And like I said before, that's why you get the new King James version or the, you know, those type of things. You will always have new translations because these type of things necessitate continued um, evaluation of archaeological discoveries that give you better insight into what some of the words mean, different things like that. There's two reasons for ongoing translations. We have more information. We can do a better job of translating. Or secondly, money. So more translations means more money that is spent uh, for the uh, publishing house and that type of thing. And our language changes. And our language changes too. Thank you for saying that because just think of the word gay. All right. So now it's associated with homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Ask your grandparents what the word gay means. It meant happy. Yeah. Okay. We had a gay old time that had nothing to do with, you know, LGBTQ. It had it had things to do with, you know, a happy party, joy, that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, our language is always changing. That necessitates. Thank you, Esp. That's good. Yeah, that's even in the uh, the Flintstones theme song. We'll have a gay old time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. This is an <laughs> Yeah. Esty's got her NIV here. And this is... Okay, I'm going to read it out of hers here. Well, that's the same as what I have in here. Uh, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. So what they did here is they took those two words in this particular translation. They took the Malakoi and uh, the other arsenikoisai, and they combine them together. That's why it's men who have sex with men. That's the way it's translated there. Yeah, and mine has uh, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. What yeah, translation are you using, Tony? I, I believe it's the NIV. It's, um... Mine's in 1994, okay. and mine says homosexual. Does it? Yeah, so it's a 1994 NIV. Okay. Um, yeah, I haven't found the date on mine, but... Yeah. yeah, mine's 1995, and it says that. And the NIV that I'm using here is 2011. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, okay. yeah. So that's interesting. When you put them side by side, um, <laughs> you, you have you know, even differences within the same translation family. Mm-hmm. So other thoughts? Well, sexual offenders. So what I say is stop offending homosexuals. There you go. <laughs> it is very unfair that one ver- <laughs> one verse is pulled out as a hammer. Because it really does not recognize the complexity, because I've given you a lot of different angles here, and, you know, to disregard that or ignore it is just not right. You have to factor that stuff in. Mm -hmm. 
But you always hear people say God said it. It's wrong. It's clear. Christ said it's wrong. Well, yet there's nothing that says God or Christ said it. Well, unless God uh, spoke audibly to you, God didn't say a thing because mm -hmm. you're reading a translation. And when you read a translation, you're reading an interpretation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it, you know, it would be best if we were just straightforward about that and say, you know, there is no such thing as a straightforward meaning, usually. I mean, the majority of the time, it involves interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I think tonight's discussion is an example of that, you know. <laughs> Anything else for the good of our discussion tonight? Well... So next week we'll finish off. It's the first Timothy 1.10 is a very similar verse to tonight, but it's being written to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. So it's a different context. So it's not Greek, it's Asia Minor. So Ephesus is in Asia Minor and Corinth is in Greek, Greek, um, Greece. So you know, we'll we'll explore that a little bit. And uh, then we'll finish off the topic. What I'd like to do, beginning two weeks from tonight, since we're in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday uh, for the time of Lent, I'd like to pull some other things I don't have time uh, for on Sunday morning out of the Gospel of Luke that you might find interesting about the book of Luke. So I, I'd want to do that for a few weeks um, after this topic. Okay. Hey, Pastor, on this bookmark for the readings, yeah. why does it say like Luke 2, 413-20? No, it's Luke, Luke chapter 2, 14 to yeah. 17 or You whatever. have a pastor who is not a very good typist. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can't be good at everything. <laughs> and then didn't proofread everything. That's true. I'm like, That's what true. the heck? So, um, okay, so look here, day four, that should be 241 through 320. Oh, okay. okay. And then day five should be 321 through 413. Just look at the following day. It'll tell you where. Missing a dash in between. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Missing a dash. Missing a, missing a dash. Dash, yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm like, what, what do you heck? think? Yeah. There's Never no know where your dash is at. <laughs> Never know where your dash is at. <laughs> no, no. All righty, folks. Good luck with the bookmark. <laughs> I don't see any yeah. problem with it. So. <laughs> All right. We'll call it a night. Have a good rest okay. of the night, and we'll see you Sunday, okay? All right. Yep. All right. Night. Good night. Good night. Good night.